Amen. Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I'll just give you a moment to find it. We're going to be reading the whole of chapter 20. So that's John 20 from verse 1 to the end. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the, jo- fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, 
his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with, was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Stephen. I'm inviting Tim up. Um, He'll be preaching for us this morning. Uh, If you joined us late this morning, I'm Adrian, one of the church wardens, and it's just great to um, have Tim with us. Him and his wife, Rosie, uh, live in Rains Park, and Rosie is a primary school teacher at one of our local schools, and yeah, they're going to be with us for, I think, about six months, is it? And yeah, it's just an amazing opportunity for them and for Tim to work out what does it look like up close and personal in ministry and seeking God's calling on their life in that way. And so I'm going to pray for Tim and then hand over the reins. So yeah, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power with which it brings. Lord, I pray this morning that as Tim opens your word, it would speak to us. God, give us eyes and ears to receive what you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would empower him by your spirit to open up the riches that are there, to expose them for us to see clearly and plainly. Lord, help us to see what you would have for us in this passage. And would it change us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Adrian. And good morning, everybody. Um, Good morning to you guys at home. Um, Thank you, too, for for reading that for us, Stephen. Uh, Chapter 20 is a long chapter. There is so much in there, but as we'll see, there are some incredible truths that we're going to see this morning. So do keep your Bible open. Uh, We're going to be dipping in and out as we work our way through. Now, some days change the course of history. From my memory, uh, school had just finished. And that day, I was going to my friend's house for dinner. It all seemed perfectly normal, but I do remember as we were driving to his house, his mum kept on turning around and telling us to stop messing about because she wanted to listen to the news. Now, at the time, I didn't quite realise what was going on. All I remember picking up was that something was happening over in New York. Something to do with some planes crashing, some awful disaster. And later in the coming days, the true extent of the tragedy unfolded. I'm sure like me, all of you have got your own stories and your own memories of where you were when you found out that the World Trade Centers had been hit on 9-11. You see, that day is etched in my memory 
as the first big news event I remember. And it's argued that that day ushered in a new world. It was really a world I mainly grew up in. Because some days change everything. Now, 9-11 was a day steeped in tragedy and loss, a day of unimaginable pain and suffering for so many people and families. And what we've just read is the account of a day that also begins in tragedy and loss, a day following immense pain and suffering, of friends mourning and scattering from one whom they thought was going to usher in a new era and a new world, breathing his last. But as we've read, and as we're going to see, this day wonderfully does not end like that. The preceding days do not enter into more and more loss and tragedy. Because this day that began steeped in pain and weeping ends with, um, ends with immeasurable joy. Now, last week we read about the crucifixion. And we were thinking about what actually happened and why that matters. Can you remember Jesus' last words? It is finished. Well, finished it might be, but that is far from the end of the story. Things are far from over. And in a passage as rich as this, uh, we can't cover everything. We're not going to have time to do that. But there are three things we're going to look at from this passage. Three things among many more that John wants to be showing us about the resurrection. We're going to see that Jesus is alive. We're going to see a call to believe in him and have life. And we're going to see that peace has been won. So the first one is this. Jesus is alive. Central to the Christian faith is an instrument of torture and an empty cave. Can you see that? Right in verse 1, we're introduced to Mary going to visit the tomb where she is expecting to find things exactly as they were after the burial. You know, tomb full, stone blocking the entrance, Jesus very much inside and very much dead. But things are not as they seem. As she, as she approaches, she sees the tomb from a distance and sees that the stone has been rolled away. She runs to find Peter and John. And at this point, her mind is thinking that Jesus' body has been stolen. It's probably worth uh, just noting here that John isn't mentioned by name in these verses, uh, but it is traditionally held that the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that is John. Anyway, uh, Peter and John come running to the tomb where they find it empty. Have a look down. We're told in verses 5 to 7 that they both go inside and all they can find are the linen cloths used to wrap Jesus when he was taken down off the cross. The tomb is empty. Perhaps Mary was right. Maybe Jesus' body had been taken. We're told by historians that grave robbery was pretty common at this time. And so maybe Jesus has just fallen foul of a thief. But not so. See John's response? He sees the empty tomb and believes. Look down with me at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. 
Now we get the editorial notes in verse 9 that he doesn't yet fully understand what was happening, but he understands enough to know that Jesus' body had not been stolen. The tomb was empty. Now in Jewish law, you needed two witnesses to testify to the accuracy and to the truth of something in a court of law. And here we have our two witnesses testifying to the empty tomb. And wonderfully, the, the tomb wasn't empty because the body had been stolen. No, the tomb was empty because the inhabitant was no longer dead. And Peter and John leave. But Mary stays, and through her weeping and through her tears, she peers into the tomb. And in there, we read, she sees two angels and speaks to them. And all at this point, she is still under the illusion that Jesus' body had been taken away. She still thinks this when Jesus confronts her. You're not recognizing her savior. She thinks him the gardener. But Jesus calls out her name. And one word from her Lord and she sees. She knows Jesus is alive. Yeah, the verse implies that she, she hugs him and wraps her arms around him. And then is sent by Jesus to go and tell the disciples. Like what a morning. What a, what a turn of events. But this is a story we're all quite familiar with, isn't it? One may be more suited uh, more to Easter Sunday than to a cold, crisp November. But it's one that we know to be true, and it's one that we hold close to our hearts. However, we mustn't let this familiarity blind us to the, to the weight of what is happening here in these verses. No, Jesus did truly die. You're a horrible, painful, breath-stopping, physical death. But Jesus truly did rise. Your heart beating, blood pumping, feet walking, mouth talking, Jesus arose. Jesus is so alive. The resurrection happened. John is under no illusion here that he wants to be hammering this point home again and again and again in these verses. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Because we we mustn't be taken in by lies and falsehoods, denying Jesus' physical death and his physical resurrection. Some people might say and would, would like us to believe that Jesus never truly died. Maybe he just passed out from the pain. Maybe he just entered a coma and and revived three days later. No, that is a lie. Others might want us to believe that that Jesus only rose in perhaps a metaphorical sense. That his spirit arose and lives in believers. Maybe, Maybe that when his disciples saw him, it was more of a ghost or a spirit. No, this too is false. Jesus truly died and truly rose. This matters. This is central to our faith. Now, I also think there's, there's something further that John is trying to show us here. Something that actually he's been threading throughout his entire book. Because here in these verses, I put to you that, that we see a new day dawned. We see a new era, a new Eden. I know it was quite a long time ago, but think all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 1. Because John starts his book in the beginning. 
At the very start of his book, John is telling his readers and setting them up for a new beginning, a new creation. And I think here that actually at the end of his book, he's reminding us of that. He's bringing that theme back in. See how this chapter begins? It begins in darkness on the first day. The scene takes place in a garden, and Jesus himself is mistaken for a gardener. And what else happened in a garden preceded by darkness on the first day of the week? We were thinking last week, weren't we, that, that Jesus is the one from the line of the first gardener, the promised one who has crushed the head of the serpent. No, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty and the new order is here. The new beginning. But we're good Christians, aren't we? So we know this. We know this story back to front. But remember, we're taking these two weeks to slow down a bit, to look a bit deeper into the doctrines and truths that we see in the crucifixion and resurrection. So what does the resurrection actually mean? Sure, Jesus is alive. We've got that covered. But what does that accomplish? What is the response to such news? Well, John spells it out for us that we should believe in him and have life. We've seen the first great truth of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive. And this is the second, that we should believe and have life. The resurrection brings us life. Skip forward with me to chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And here John gives us his reason for writing the book. This is almost the conclusion that he wants the readers to come to upon reading about this Jesus and about his death and resurrection. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe and have life. By believing in Jesus, we can have the life that he offers us. John here explains what it is we are to believe. You see that? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Old Testament promised king from the line of David. The one who was going to come and redeem God's people. The one promised to crush the head of the serpent and reverse the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. Jesus is that Christ. He is the Christ. What else? Well, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, God incarnate, perfect in deity. The only one with the power to take away the punishment of sins he did not commit. The perfect, spotless Passover lamb. The one who died without sin, fulfilling the law for those of us who cannot. The only one who can give us his perfection and his righteousness. Paul writes in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those that believe in Jesus have new life. They have a life in Jesus' name. And as Christians, we have this resurrection life. 
life eternal to be enjoyed in the presence of God in the new creation forever when we go to him. But what does that resurrection life, that life in us from Jesus, what does that look like now? You know, what does it look like day to day? What does it look like you know, tomorrow morning when it's cold and dark and the alarm goes off and we don't want to get out of bed? Well, I think the book of Hebrews is really helpful in this, you know, calling us to strive to finish the race, to keep on going, to keep pushing, knowing that we have a future inheritance waiting for us. But we mustn't just act as if we're, if we're solely waiting for the new creation, almost just holding our breath and waiting. Now, this world is not a waiting room. Now, we know that this world is not our home, that our allegiance isn't here. Remember Paul writing to the Colossians, telling them to set their hearts and their minds on things above where Christ is. Whilst we must do that, we mustn't forget that we're actually still here. We're here as strangers, yes, and as foreigners, but we're very much still here. We are here living this new life. We're here living the life that's been granted to us by Jesus. Again, Paul writing in Romans, in chapter 8, For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. A few verses later he goes on, Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Those who have life in Jesus have life according to his Spirit. We live and we walk by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that indwells us. It's the Spirit that gives us the new life we have. And this Spirit spirit isn't dormant. He doesn't just wait around whilst we live out our 70, maybe 80 years, to then become active when we die. You know, we're we're born again the moment we recognise Christ as Lord. And that very moment, the Spirit begins his work within us, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. You know, the resurrection life sets us free to live like this, to live like children of the King. And this is where we see the new life we have in Christ. And this is where we see it in ourselves and in each other. Because I'm sure you've noticed that you're different to members of your family or friends or colleagues that don't follow Christ as their Lord. Let's be honest, when we think about it, a lot of what we do is really weird. Like, a lot of what we do is so odd to an outside world. Let's think about what we do on Sundays. Usually, why would we get up early and come to a cold room to hang out with people we, we wouldn't usually meet? to love them and to care for them and to enjoy spending time with them, to do things for them and with them, often at our own cost, that is not normal to the outside world. But we do this because we're now a family. Because the life we have in Christ binds us together with each other with bonds that are stronger than blood or friendship. Maybe it's that we're honest on our tax return, declaring that cash in hand. Or or we try to be generous with money, even when someone is never going to see and never going to know. It's not particularly normal to an outside world. 
But God's Spirit is working this life within us, making us want to obey our Father in honouring our government and reflecting the generosity of Jesus, knowing that actually the money we have isn't ours, but rather it's a gift from God. Or maybe it's at work. You've messed up, you've made a mistake, but you could really easily just a little white lie and cover it up. No one would ever know. But we seek to be honest. And we love the truth. Because that is what we're commanded to do. Now, of course we mess up. I do all the time. But this is where we see the Spirit working out this resurrection life within us. Because I think that we, we can sometimes think of this new life as a single event. You think like a firework going off, one big bang, and that's it. And the new life indwelling us is a single event. Yes, this does only happen once. But this is only the beginning, the beginning of a continual work that the Holy Spirit does within us. Like, like the spark that ignites a fire. And we have a new life in Christ, now and eternal. And I suggest this is why John puts his purpose statement here. You know, the end of the passage showing us the resurrected Lord Jesus, bringing in a new life and a new creation, this is the invitation. You know, come, see, believe, have this new life, be a part of this new creation Jesus is bringing in. Believe in him and have life in his name. I don't know if you've ever witnessed someone who's just come to know Jesus for the first time or gotten to know someone who just has. When I first moved to London after uni, there was a young couple that had recently joined the church I was at. And they just uh, read Mark's Gospel and done Christianity Explored with a friend and given their lives to Christ. And their excitement was almost electric. They, they had so much joy in everything they saw now that their eyes had been opened to the gospel. Friends, when we believe we have this new life in Jesus, new life now and for the age to come, all brought about by Jesus' death and resurrection, we have life Believe in his name and have life. Well, finally, we see in these verses why it is possible for us to have this new life. You know, what has actually happened in order for Jesus to be able to offer us this life? And this is what we see in verses 19 to 29. That peace has been won. Now, over the years, I've spent considerable time in the Middle East. And one of the most common greetings out there is, peace be with you. So you're, you're greeting someone or meeting them for the first time, you'd say, salam alaikum, means peace be with you. Uh, and the, the response, alaikum salam, and also with you. Now, I know peace isn't often a word that we'd associate with the Middle East, but it's part of their culture. It, it's what they do to greet one another. And it's not just a word confined to other places, is it? Yeah, we say it too. Every Sunday we greet each other with a sign of the peace. We say to one another, peace be with you and also with you. And where does that come from? Why do we do that? Well, I think it comes from here. 
You notice what Jesus says each time he comes to see his disciples. Peace be with you. Three times Jesus says it here. Now, on one level, I think it's a reassurance from Jesus to his disciples. These are the very same disciples that, that scattered and fled and abandoned Jesus at the cross. The disciples that were fearful of reprisal from Jewish authorities and meeting behind locked doors. Now, Jesus isn't here to chastise those who believe in him or discipline them when they mess up. Jesus is coming in peace. But there's a deeper truth here to Jesus' words. The peace he offers is not just one offered to his disciples, but a recognition and an acknowledgement that there's now peace between man and God. We're we're thinking these two weeks about great doctrinal truths behind the crucifixion and resurrection, and this is a huge one of them. The crucifixion and resurrection are what bring us peace with God. And the resurrection is proof that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins has been accepted. That the punishment for sins has been paid by Jesus and that it has been accepted by God the Father. Kevin DeYoung, the American pastor and writer, I think has a quite, quite a helpful illustration. Because he used, to explain this, he uses the illustration of an older brother Um, taking the rap for something his younger brother has done. And the older brother, whilst innocent, will take the punishment and take the blame and is sent to his room by his parents. Now, how does the younger brother know that the crime has been dealt with, that the punishment has been dealt with? How does he know that he's no longer in the firing line Well, is it not when the older brother comes back downstairs? He sees his sentence out and he comes downstairs because the punishment has been dealt with. So the empty tomb, that is our guarantee that Jesus' death paid the price for our sins and brought us peace with God. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 reads this, For in him, that's Jesus, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace between man and God has been achieved because of Jesus. Charlie mentioned this word reconciliation last week. And here we've got it again. Jesus is reconciling. He is bringing people back to God. People like us, who without Jesus are lost and drowning in sin, we are brought back by his peace. You know, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. The resurrection is proof of the peace now between God and man. And Jesus shows this to us. Look at his conversation with Mary in verse 17. This is is an amazing theological statement that Jesus makes. Jesus is talking with Mary and says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now throughout John's gospel, we've heard Jesus praying to God as his father. And now because of his death and resurrection, that privilege is extended to us. You see that your father, your God, Jesus says. The intimate relationship that was broken by sin has been restored. Because on our own, we have no right to call God our father. But through Jesus, Christians have the ability to be at peace with God. Through Jesus, we do have that privilege and that right. And this idea of peace, it's, it's not a cold, diplomatic peace. Uh, like, like two countries that were at war but are now neutral, not yet friends. No, this is, a, this is a, a close relationship. This is a family relationship. This is a peace and a relationship built on love. Now think back to Genesis, where God used to walk with Adam back in the garden. Well, in this new creation brought about by Jesus, that relationship is restored. We're welcomed into the family of God with Christ as our older brother. Peace has been won. Some days change the course of history. And some days usher in a new era, a new world, and none more so than this one. You know, a risen Lord Jesus and life in his name and peace with God. You know, the resurrection has brought all this about. Now, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, and there is still so much that could be said. There are heaps in this chapter we haven't even looked at or touched on. And there's even more throughout the Bible that points us to the glorious reality and truths of the resurrection. But let us rejoice, you know, Christ is alive. If we believe in him, we can have the life that he offers us. And that there is peace with God, our creator. I'm going to pray as we close. Heavenly Father, what, what a glorious account we've read here. What glorious truths have been uncovered. We thank you that Christ is not dead. He did not remain in that tomb, but he is alive. We thank you for the life that he offers us, that your spirit is now in us, giving us that life. And we thank you that we can be here today praying to you as our Father because we are now at peace. Not because of us, but because of Christ. Amen.